the scripture, and then we'll talk together. So I invite you to um, turn in, in your uh, Bibles to chapter 5 of Matthew, Matthew 5. We're going to read starting at verse 13. In your pew Bible, that'll be on page 962. Chapter 5 of Matthew, and it'll be 962 in your pew Bible. Jesus is speaking. You might recall when and how this particular phrase came together at the Sermon on the Mount. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the, uh, relaxes? That looks like, well, no, that's the way it's worded in this particular edition. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of these least of those commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Yeah, I got blindsided by my own ignorance there. Does that ever happen to you? It's okay. I love scripture study. I think most of you know that about me. But, you know, every now and again, I read a word that I didn't see that way once before. You know, that was uh, Nathan and I were having a conversation the other day. That's my son. And he said, Dad, did you know that this particular piece of punctuation is called uh, an iota or a jot or a tittle? And I said, as a matter of fact, I do know that. I had a very expensive education that taught me that. Because Jesus said it. And what was he referring to? He was talking about the dots over the eyes and the commas and, the, and all those little things, those, those little accent marks and things. He said not even one of those would be left out. So a little side note there for you. George, I'm going to channel your spirit for a moment as I introduce my message today. Because as I was writing this, I thought about you. I've had many conversations with my good friend George Ball, and he's going to be speaking to you next week, and uh, he can get me back. But this sounds like something you would say. See, I was researching for today's message, and, and I, I found an article in Southern Living Magazine, of all places, that described 12 different kinds of salt. Who knew 
knew there were 12 different kinds of salt, and I suppose there could be more, but listen to this. We have table salt, kosher salt, Himalayan pink salt, sea salt, Celtic gray salt, fleur de sel, flake salt, red Hawaiian salt, black Hawaiian salt, smoked salt, Himalayan black salt, and pickling salt. Who knew? But I know this. This is the George thinking right here. If you take away their saltiness, they're all just dirt. <laughs> they're all just dirt. Here's some more logic for you that I did research this. I looked on my Home Depot app, which I use regularly, you know, and uh, uh, I noticed that they have hundreds of different kinds of lights. They really do. They have smart lights and dumb lights. They have LEDs. They have some old-fashioned incandescent bulbs, I think, and they have lights that come in fairly pretty containers, and they have lights that are pretty, you know, basic and everything, but they all have one thing in common. When you turn them off, it gets dark. <laughs> Am I right, George? Yeah, see, he's like, yep. He's many times encouraged me by saying, Dan, I've looked around the room and, you know, and then he gives me some very good observation that encourages my soul. That's why he's such a good friend. So anyway, I'm sorry for embarrassing you, but I was really celebrating your, your profound encouragement. So here's the thing. Jesus has said something that can't be disputed really by anybody because he's saying if you're the salt of the earth and you lose your saltiness, then you're like salt that loses its saltiness. And I've looked many times at the two things that I'm thinking of, salt and sand, and I realize the only difference is the taste. Sand does not taste good. Salt, on the other hand, can be very good. Same thing with light. I don't know if you've had the opportunity in your life to go out into, you know, far-flung places, you know, wilderness places, or maybe long drives across the western United States, and have you ever driven in such darkness that one light, you know, just one of those pole lights by a barn is, is like a star, you know? It's so brilliant that you get fixated on it. You, you see the stars in the sky in a different way. You see the moon in a different way. Light is so powerful that we often take it for granted. And then when it's gone, we feel like we're floundering. You know, we, we feel the absence of light. And in scripture, basically light is goodness. It's, it's, it's you know, uh, there's, there's something as old as, as humanity that tells us that darkness is scary and evil lurks in the darkness and light is good and that good things happen under the light. And so if there's something good in you that needs to be expressed, then it would be characterized as light. And so here's Jesus saying, you're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. You give this world we live in flavor and light. Now, what I want to talk about today is a question. What is church? 
And if church isn't light and salt for the earth, then what is it? I mean, if we haven't learned anything else in the last year or two, really, it's how to ask the question, what is church? What is church? Is it a denomination? Is it a religion? Is it a place for weddings and funerals and baptisms and sacraments, confirmations, that sort of thing? If it's the people, remember when you were kids and you did that thing where you go, here's the church, here's the steeple, open the doors and here are the people. You remember that one? Man, when your fingers are cold, that's really hard. So if church is the people, then what people? What kind of people? People who attend? People who enjoy the company of their classmates in small groups? People who like the music or the preaching? Is they the church? What's church about? What's the point? Why do you come? Why do you come each week or maybe just once in a while or maybe once a year? And what do you think you're paying for when you put money in the offering plate? There's a question. Is it worship or is it a contribution? And if you ever invited somebody to church, what are you inviting them to? What are you inviting them to experience? Your answer to that question says a lot about what you think church is. And what about membership? Does your membership mean anything special? Does it entitle you to anything? These are questions that we've had to ask a lot over the last couple of years. So the Greek word for church in the New Testament is ekklesia. And it's literally translated as a called out assembly. Paul kind of explains his understanding of church in 1 Corinthians where he says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So his understanding of the word church or called out assembly is people who are sanctified. Now, if you've been going to church here for a while, you know that word because we've talked about it often. It's, it's the word that says, I understand that when I become a Christian, I'm a baby Christian and that my objective is to keep growing up and growing older and wiser and more filled with the Holy Spirit. Sanctification is a journey of personal holiness. And in the same way, the church as a collective group seeks this same kind of sanctification. I think over the last year or two, we've been going through a process of sanctifying Shiloh Church. And that process comes with a cost. There's a favorite hymn of mine that says that God turns up the heat so that he can remove your dross and leave behind a purer gold. Dross are, is, is when, you, when you are refining gold or silver, you, you heat it up so that the impurities come to the surface so they can be scraped off 
leaving behind a purer, purer gold and silver. And so in the same way, sanctification is a process of God cooking you till you're about ready. But then he turns the heat up a little bit higher. So this is what Paul describes as the church. And if the biblical concept then is that, then how does that pair with all the things that I just suggested might be church to some of us? It's a hard thing to hear, and the reason I'm sharing this with you in particular is because your leadership team and staff and I met together last weekend for a really intense time of worship and prayer and self-examination, church examination. You know, we really asked the Lord to sanctify the Shiloh Church, starting with its leaders and working the way through all of us. And so I'm here today to say, well, then... We've had some conversation and we've talked about what church is and what church isn't. And we've realized that God's enemy has been up to no good since the fall, since he infiltrated the garden where God created the people who would be his particular people, those that would be set aside to be the eternal companions of his son. And Satan fooled them. He created a counterfeit to the tree of life. He created a counterfeit message. And he did this in a way that was intended to fool them. I don't know if you've ever handled counterfeit currency or had anything to do with counterfeits of anything. You know, knockoff uh, watches and bags and all these things that people cherish. And, and you get conned into buying something that seems to be the real thing, but then find out later that it's a ripoff, that it's not the real thing, that there are certain critical things that don't work, that don't add up, and that's what happens. We were, matter of fact, <laughs> remember Joy Group at Culver's a month or so ago? You know what was going on that night when we were getting ready to leave? I know y'all were getting rowdy and you thought the cops came in because of you. Because I'm telling you, those 55 and olders, man, you get them out of this church for a while and they start partying, drinking soft drinks and stuff. But the cops weren't there for that reason. It turned out there was some counterfeit currency that had been passed while we were there. None of us, of course, had anything to do with that. But here you go. There is a counterfeit Christianity. There's a counterfeit version of church. And it makes sense when you think about it because this is the enemy's primary problem. You know what basically got the devil on the wrong side of God? The devil took himself seriously and he thought God should too. You know, I've offended a few people in my life because I just couldn't take them as seriously as they took themselves. And eventually I got frustrated and told them so. I repent of it because it usually doesn't come out the way I want it to. But here's the thing. If we're going to really be honest about what church is and what it isn't, then the one thing we have to acknowledge from the get-go is that church isn't about me. Being here and doing this 
should never be about me. It's a hard thing to hear, but let's be honest about this. If we're going to be sanctified, we're going to have to acknowledge that the entertainment value, the relationship value, the quality of our pitch-in dinners and the quality of our music and the quality of the preaching and all of that, all of those things are meaningful at a certain level. But they are not what this is about. Just as Becky said to the children, worship, by the way, that word breaks down to a word that generally, a phrase that means worth-ship. In other words, we can't help praising God because God's worth it. You're compelled by this internal force to glorify God and you don't even know where it comes from. Now, I want to own something just because my shoulders got tired raising my hand during that song. In my personal experience, I feel the presence of God more profoundly and my prayer and worship in a way that kind of want, it sort of compresses me. I, I actually want to crumple and kneel, you know. I don't regularly raise my hands when I feel the presence of God or the presence of the Holy Spirit. Does that mean you shouldn't? No, it doesn't mean that at all. It means that we're all different. We all experience God's presence in different ways. And however you really experience God's presence, feel free to respond that way. It'll be okay. The most important thing is, is that you put yourself aside for his sake. So the enemy will convince you that you are God. Now, none of us are so naive as to think we're God. I know there are people out there that do, but most of us wouldn't be going to church at all if we were feeling that way. But if you go to church, the enemy may convince you that it is about you. The, the, the enemy may convince you that if you're not being fed or if you're not getting what you feel like you need or whatever, that that, that is justification in some way or another. And I'll grant you that over the last couple of years, this church and its members have been ghosted by a lot of folks. And I'm not mad at them, but I don't know why. I just know they're gone. And it breaks my heart because we had invested ourselves into them. We loved one another as a family, made a family by the one Holy Spirit. But if it turns out that what you are hungry for, and I'm not saying this about anybody who's not here or anybody who is here, but I'm telling you in a very broad sense that if it turns out that you really prefer the counterfeit, then it probably won't hurt you to walk away. It probably won't hurt you when someone else walks away. Because the Holy Spirit is this living being that indwells all of those who have been born again in Christ's favor, in his love and his work to redeem us and make us once again able to be in God's presence like they were in the garden so long ago. And that thing unites us in a way that is holy and sacred and sanctified. It doesn't mean that we're all Quakers and Shakers or any other outward expression. It really just means that you see the Christian community as a family 
and you feel a connection not only with God and the Son and the Holy Spirit, but with each other. Now I think we're getting at what church is. Church is the body of Christ. Now listen, I'm in good company if I'm irritating people or confusing people or anything else because I've been reading a lot about the Apostle Paul lately and, and what I'm recognizing is, is he was brilliant at that. He was always frustrating people and confusing them and that's because he had a message that nobody heard. Nobody heard before. He was preaching against the counterfeit now, I've got news for you, and it's a hard thing for me to say, but I, I'm going to say it. There are many, many Christians, many, many people who have been going to church all their lives who are so familiar with the counterfeit that they can't tell the difference between the real thing and the counterfeit. But I'll give you a hint. If you want to know how to tell the difference between the real thing and the counterfeit, Go find people who don't go to church, who want nothing to do with Christians. Go find people who are what we call unchurched, people who really have no frame of reference like yours when it comes to Christianity, because they can spot the counterfeit in a second. They can spot the counterfeit just like that. They really can because they've been so experienced, the unchurched, the non-Christian, or the one who practices a foreign religion or whatever. They, they spot the counterfeit in a second because for them, it's often been a bitter experience. So the whole purpose of the preaching since the first of the year and right on through to Easter is to help you fall in love with Jesus. I mean, really fall in love with Jesus. And one of the things that'll make you fall in love with him is his message that is so completely counter to the religion you grew up with. His message offended the religious leaders of his day in the same way that my message may be offending some people who have gone to church all their lives. Now, because it's a message that says, I don't care what religion you practice. I don't care what traditions you honor. I don't care what the name on your building says or the certificate at your house that says you're a member of this or you were that or whatever. I don't care about any of that. What I care about is your soul. It's eternal and it was meant to be preserved for all eternity and for a marriage-like relationship with God's Son. And he came to fulfill that. He came to make that happen. And the way you become part of his body is to throw yourself under the bus, to let yourself be less important than anything else, that you put him above all else, that you put the things he cares about ahead of the things you care about. You learn to change what you care about to the things he cares about. You begin to have your eyes 
changed like the Apostle Paul's eyes. He was deeply dedicated to the counterfeit. And so Jesus blinds him, hits his reset button, and then scales fall from his eyes and suddenly he's seeing the world through new lenses and their Holy Spirit lenses, their sanctified lenses. And then he was zealous for Christ instead of the counterfeit, the religion the religious community. What is church? Well, it's not just a building and it's not just a denomination or a congregation. In fact, the pandemic that we've experienced in the last couple of years has really kind of proven you know, the dross thing again. It's proven that churches that are built on things that are temporary and temporal suffer and die because they're no longer fashionable. They're no longer trendy. They're no longer relevant. Churches who are filled with the Holy Spirit, Christians who are filled with the Holy Spirit will always have something to offer this world of the flesh we live in because it's Jesus Christ. Because when you fall in love with Jesus and you give yourself to him and you let his spirit transform your nature, then in his own words, I can assure you that what you've become then is Christ to the unchurched, to the one who's suffering to the one that Jesus cares so deeply about. And suddenly they're not meeting your religion or your church and all its programs and activities and its excellent music and its incredible preaching. Instead, they're meeting Jesus. That's who they need to get to know. And that's when you realize that you and your church, your congregation, are undergoing sanctification. And praise God, I think we are going through that right now. And I welcome it. Let us pray. Almighty God, sear upon our hearts that which came entirely from your heart and mind so that your word is the only thing that people leave with. And where my humanity and my attitude and my sin have failed I pray you would erase it from their memories so that they leave hearing you and forgiving me so that together we really are a sanctified body of Christ. Amen. Amen.